0: Welcome to Teaching from Trinity, a weekly podcast from Trinity Lutheran Church in Rupert, Idaho. For the months of January through May, Rev. Dr. James Von Bush is leading this class exploring the book of Revelation. If you would like the handout to accompany this week's lesson, please visit our website, tlcrupert.com. You can find them on the virtual attendance page under the Home tab. Thank you for listening! Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for your patience, your long suffering, your goodness and grace. We thank you, Father, that you have orchestrated things in this world from the beginning. And you have even told us that our salvation was on your mind before the foundations of the earth. So, Father, help us to trust in you, your wisdom, your power, but most of all, your love and grace. Father, thank you for being faithful, keeping your promises we ask you to keep your promise today, to enlighten us with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. From Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. One of the things we're going to highlight today in our look at book of Revelation is the various contrasts that are recorded by John and what he sees in the process of being revealed to him. What is happening, what what has happened, what is happening, what is still going to happen. So we'll look at some of those contrasts. And as I've been trying to illustrate and emphasize throughout the time in this study, when we look at the church letters, those seven letters to the seven churches, sure, it was written to seven churches in real locations at real times and places and people. And yet we also understand and know that they are written to Christ's church in all generations and places and all times. So there's an, an aspect of what was happening for the people in that moment as they received this letter from John, but also for the church ongoing. And then even what to anticipate and look forward to in the final days and then eternity. So there's always that perspective to keep in mind. When we look at the seals, we recognize that there is suffering for all the people on earth in all generations and times and places because, as I've said before, we live in a broken world. And we're broken people. And we're surrounded by broken people. And then also Satan is after you as well. So. There's a whole lot of reason why we experience trials, tribulations, and hardships in this world. And it takes great wisdom to understand, and beyond understand, live faithfully in the midst of those trials. So that's really the call that God has for us, is we will all experience suffering, times of pain and hurt and heartache. And so we call upon Christ and the Holy Spirit to guide us through those times and to live faithfully in those times. That's the seals. Everyone experiences those, just like the plagues in Egypt, the first three plagues. Everyone, Egyptian and Jew, experienced all the same suffering. But then we went on and looked at the trumpets, which were signals. Signals for not only the people of God, but definitely for the people who continued to rebel against God. Signals of judgment warning signs. And so those were happening simultaneously with the seven seals. It's not chronological. It's not that we get through all seven seals and then we pick up with seven trumpets and then eventually get to seven bowls. They are happening simultaneously. And there are different reasons for suffering and heartache. And so even as we continue in our discussion today and we take a look at the red dragon and the two beasts, again, just summary, we talked about them last week for a moment. Uh, We want to summarize a few things there as well. But the idea here is that this all happens all along through time and, and history now and going forward. What we're given the gift of in the book of Revelation is God's perspective from heaven on the things that are happening and the things that he, are, he is doing. And so one of the things we're confronted with regularly, or regularly, frequently, consistently, is the difference, the contrast between God's perspective and man's perspective. And it'll be a challenge for us. If it hasn't challenged you already, I think it will kind of um, peak today And what we talk about, is that our perspective, if we're... If we can humble ourselves to acknowledge this, our perspective is very different than God's perspective. He tells us through Isaiah the prophet that his ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts are much greater than our thoughts. Who can comprehend the mind of God? The rhetorical answer to that question is no one can. No one can comprehend the mind of God. And so some of the things that he is revealing to us are really meant to emphasize this difference between what he sees and what we see, what he thinks what we think, what he's doing, and how we understand and interpret what that means. If we look at this then in the context of the red dragon and the two beasts, I'm going to read these verses for us again in a minute. The question is what about us? What is our perspective? How in line or out of line is it with God's perspective? One of the things we see in the book of Revelation is a continual understanding of this is, there is a spiritual realm that is greater than the physical realm we live in. And I think even as believers, sometimes we get that reversed. We think the physical realm is greater than the spiritual realm. We think what we experience here in the temporal physical realm is more important than the spiritual realm. We think that what we're doing right now is of greater importance than eternity. And so I think one of the things God is giving us the opportunity for is to reflect on. The spiritual realm and how great it is, and then to be able to think and perceive spiritually while we live in this physical, temporal time. So let's take a look at the red dragon and the two beasts. Like I said, we talked about this last week, but I want to emphasize a couple of things. So from chapter 13, verses 5 through 8. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. So think about this for a minute. Where's the dwelling place of God? And? In our hearts, right? Christ in us, the Holy Spirit in us. We are the temple of God. And so, yes, in heaven, on the throne, this speaks to his omnipresence. He is everywhere, I heard somebody say. So he is sitting on his throne. Christ is at the right hand of God the Father. And yet, he is with us. Where two or three are gathered in his name, Jesus says, I am with you. When we participate in the Holy Supper, he is truly present with us. And he is present in each of his believers. And so when we gather together, the constellation and Christ is here. So where is the temple? Where is he reside? In us. So now think about this again. This beast opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, attacking the dwelling place of God. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Wow. it's a lot to digest in that moment. But think about the perspective and the contrast again. We've heard repeatedly that the multitude that was beyond count worshiping God They are from every tribe, tongue, nation, and place on earth, right? And now we see the same exact phrase about those people who are following the lead of of the beast. They come from everywhere. Same kind of thing. And authority was given over every tribe, people, language, and nation. So the first bullet point when we talk about the red dragon and the two beasts is it's referring to an anti-Christian power. That's what we hear in this first beast, and that's what I was reading about. You see the dragon gave power to the first beast, the ability to blaspheme God, to attack the saints. And so we're talking about anti-Christian power. Let me also read then from verses 11 and 12, and then moving on to the next I'm actually going to go back to chapter 11 for a minute, but 11 and 12. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. This is the second beast. It serves the first beast. It had two horns like a lamb, spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. So the second bullet point is anti-Christian propaganda. You have this tandem set between the first beast and the second beast and the second beast is using propaganda deceit messages to get people to worship the first beast they're working in that tandem pair what is the holy spirit one of the things the holy spirit does works faith in us directs our faith to jesus christ so you see this fake false pseudo approach here they're They're looking at the true trinity and saying, how can we have a fake trinity? And the Holy Spirit gives and directs faith of people towards Christ. The second beast is seeking to direct trust and and love towards the first beast. So there's this really wicked approach here that they have going on. Let me turn back to 11, chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at the dead bodies of the two witnesses and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb, meaning giving them no honor. That's the point there, no honor. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, the two witnesses, and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. So the third bullet point is that people fear, love, and trust the beasts. You remember from your confirmation and catechism? the explanation of the first commandment is that we would fear, love, and trust God alone. But here, because of the the deceit and the work and the power of the beasts and the dragon, People fear, love and trust the beast. They were exchanging presents because the witness of the word was silenced. They were making merry because finally the law of God was not pestering their hearts anymore. They thought it' was great freedom. And people, therefore, the fourth bullet point, people adore. they love. And give allegiance to the beast. Does that startle you? Mm -hmm. This, thank you, Anita. This is everyday life on planet Earth. Mm -hmm. This is not some future moment. This has been, is right now, and will continue to be the dragon and the beast. Remember, this is from God's perspective. God says it's a dragon and it's a beast, and it's a second beast, and he's describing this for John to write down, for the people of God to say, yes, we are dealing with anti-Christian powers in this world. Yes, we are dealing with anti-Christian messages and propaganda in this world, and we are surrounded by people who love, trust, and fear the beast. They adore it and give their allegiance to it every day. Every day. This should not surprise us. But I think what happens is that sometimes we read the book of Revelation. We go, wow, that's startling. That's dramatic. That's My imagination can't really conceptualize what's being described here. And God's saying to us, that is every day, people. My people. That is every day. You are surrounded by the beasts and the work of the beasts and the people who give allegiance to the beasts. And so, mankind looks at the beasts, and they don't see them that way, see it that way, but what they see is power. When I give allegiance, when I follow the lead of these beasts, whatever message it is, whether it comes through the TV, the social media, the books we read, the people we interact with, the me- whatever, wherever it comes from, it all finds its source in the beasts and the dragons. And so people see that and go, there's power in that. You see people living out power in this world? Or gratifying self. You see anybody, any messages out there that say, hey, gratify your own selfish desires? That's probably not happening too much. And we're being attacked with that as well. The same things. You know, strive for power. Might makes right. Get your way gratify your selfish desires do whatever gives pleasure or whatever seems right and again is that idea the message of the beast is, is welcomed by mankind oh do whatever I want to do do whatever makes me happy do what I think I or get what I think I deserve these are the messages of the beast and we're surrounded by them and what and why God is describing it for us this way is he is saying, so be aware, my people. Be aware. This is what you're being confronted with. It is no small thing. They are smart and cunning. Remember how they're described in Genesis. The serpent is the craftiest among all. So we must be alert. We must be on guard. We must put on the full armor of God as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6 because we are fighting these these are who we battle with. God says, "They're beasts." He says, "Share my perspective on these. They're beasts. They are corrupt and cunning and they are repulsive and deceptive." He says, "Share my perspective, my beloved." On what is normal in our world. So this is everyday life. Anti-Christian power, anti-Christian propaganda. People fear, love, and trust the beast, and people adore and give their allegiance to the beast. Even within the church. Even within the church. Yeah, they don't stop at the door, no. because what happens? People come in the door, <laughs> so. Well, even even we're going to struggle with that. I mean, I'm sinner and saint, and I'm still influenced by the beast, and I find that sometimes my thought patterns are influenced by the messages of the beast. Sometimes my decisions are about gratifying self. Are they not? I mean, are any of us immune to that? Want to be happy? Want to get what we think we deserve? But as... People who hold to our doctrine and convictions of faith, what do we deserve? We deserve punishment. We receive God's love and forgiveness and blessing because of his grace. It's important for us to be shaped by that perspective. And again, to recognize from God's perspective, these beasts are corrupt and corrupting, deceitful and deceiving. Powerful and overpowering. That's Like Paul says, we do not fight, wage war against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the rulers of evil in the heavenly places. So let's talk about the Lamb, and we have another reference to his 144,000. Verse 1 through 5 of chapter 14. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Keeping in mind, 144,000, 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. All of God's people from Old Testament, New Testament, complete, the three tens, utter completeness. So are they really going to all fit on the top of Mount Zion? This is, again, an example of of, an illustration. The book of Revelation is imagery and, and figurative speech to communicate a message. All of God's people are with him. Mount Zion in heaven. That's what was being described. John says, I see all of God's people in heaven standing with the Lamb. That's precious. And they had his name our Savior's name, Christ's name on us, and our Father's name on us. He puts his name on us. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. So is it harps or is it raging water? It's loud and powerful and beautiful all at the same time. And where was I? And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the hundred and forty-four thousand who had been redeemed from the earth. Because no one can say, Jesus is Lord, unless the Holy Spirit works in you to say it. You either adore the beasts and the world of the beasts, or you adore Christ. And it's the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us, no one can say Jesus Christ is Lord unless the Holy Spirit has changed your heart to be able to say that. And so these people are all who have been redeemed, all who sing this new song, all who say Jesus is Lord. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been, sounds like the Good Shepherd passage that John wrote about in his gospel. Jesus says, "I am the good shepherd, and my sheep hear my voice; they know my voice. I call them by name, and they follow me." This is awesome. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth there was, uh, in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. A little bit to unpack here. So, of course, the Lamb, as I've already mentioned, but for filling in the blanks, the Lamb is Christ. The Lamb who was slain. The same Lamb who had the power to open the scroll. The same Lamb who stood as one that had been slain and now alive again. That's who we're talking about. The 144,000 are all who fear, love, and trust God. Here's this great contrast that I was mentioning a minute ago. It is either or. There is no neutral or middle ground from God's perspective. Either allegiance, loyalty, and love for the beasts and the things of this world or fear, love, and trust God alone have no other gods before him. They were, as we heard here in Revelation and and here many other places in his word, they were purchased. It says they were redeemed. These are the ones who were redeemed. God's name placed on them. The second thing is that they follow the Lamb. They don't follow the deceptions of the beasts in this world. They don't succumb to the powers of but they follow the Lamb. And the final statement about them is that they are righteous. When he says, when John writes these words that they were blameless, they had not defiled themselves, they are righteous because they wear the robe of Christ's righteousness. In our baptism, Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, in our baptism we were clothed with the righteousness of Christ so they are righteous. As I mentioned already, Mount Zion is heaven. I got ahead of myself a little bit. And the other thing that's included in this passage from chapter 14 is that the actual number, this 144,000, is not a cap. It's not a limit, as some have tried to say. Instead, what it is communicating it is, the actual number is growing until the last one growing until the very last one comes to repentance, faith in Jesus Christ. So this number is that complete population of heaven. Isn't that kind of fun to think about? They're all standing there on Mount Zion in heaven with the Lamb who redeemed them, and it's the total population of heaven. All of heaven rejoices. They sing this new song and it's beautiful and it's loud and it's powerful because it's about the one who redeemed us. And so they sing this new song. All of heaven rejoices, Jesus says, over every repentant heart. You remember that? When he's talking about the lost coin and the lost sheep and the lost son and every time he says, and all of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. In fact, he says, when the sheep is found, he comes back, throws a party, tells all his friends, I found the sheep that had wandered off. I went and got it, brought it back. And then it's a great rejoicing. When the woman found the coin that was lost, great rejoicing. And then when the son was returned home, he throws a big, big, all of heaven rejoices and sings this song. So that's the lamb and his 144,000. The virgin probably take a little bit of explaining. So let's just pause here for a moment. The virgins are representative now of the bride of Christ. The holy, blameless, pure bride of Christ. So already, you know, we're saying, we're seeing as God is revealing this to John, one illustration is not enough. And that's why we have the whole cyclical fashion of the way book of Revelation is written. One perspective is not enough. We're going to talk about it from this perspective. Then we're going to talk about it from this perspective. Then I'm going to tell you what's been going on this way and why you're experiencing this in life. And so it's multiple perspectives, really, truly three-dimensional from all sides. And even then, even talking about his own church, Jesus says, it's like the 144,000 standing on the top of the mountain. That's the picture. That's the vista. Standing on top of the mountain, singing and rejoicing. And now that's not enough to describe the people of God, so we're going to talk about it from the perspective of the bride, the bride of Jesus Christ. And so now we're going to talk about virgins, of the bride of Christ and they are without spot or blemish. They're pure. That's the idea here. So let me read from Ephesians chapter 5. These will be verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So Jesus Christ sacrificed himself. A sacrificial love gave his life to redeem the bride, his church, his people, and to sanctify them, to cleanse them, to present them as this radiant church. That's the picture in Revelation Chapter 14 of the Virgins, the Radiant Bride. What was the reference? That was Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27. And then also this idea of the Virgins in the book of Revelation is speaking of complete devotion. Contrasting this with the complete devotion of the world populace towards the beasts here is a pure complete total devotion by, by the people of God towards Christ his son you're going to read from second corinthians chapter 11 verses 1 through 5 that's second corinthians chapter 11 verses 1 through 5 Paul says, I hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please, put up with me. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I pro- Isn't jealousy a sin? And he just called it a godly jealousy. There are a couple of times, this one and then once in the Old Testament, where God describes himself as being jealous for his people's devotion. He wants their devotion to him only 100 percent, and so he's jealous if we give it elsewhere. If we give our devotion and love and faith elsewhere, he is jealous for it. And now Paul says, "I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband." Paul is saying, "I kind of gave the bride away to Christ." but you are going elsewhere. That's the devastating thought here. You are the bride of Christ who has been given to Christ alone, devoted to him, and you are giving your devotion elsewhere. He says, um, so Paul says, I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, dragon and beast's, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Does this catch our heart, as was brought up already? It's not like the beasts and the dragon are only impacting and infecting people out there. It's If there's people, our hearts have been impacted by it. It's right here in the church. This, so Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, I'm afraid that just as Eve in the garden was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. Wow. Wow. So, Paul is saying it's about these virgins' complete devotion. You have been given to Christ, therefore you can give complete devotion to Christ. Paul says, you didn't go looking for him, you were given to Christ through the gospel. How now is it that you are so easily putting up with the deceptions of the world? And the context also, I think, is a reference to Israel as being adulterous. We hear that throughout the Old Testament repeatedly. One of God's judging statements towards the people of the Israelites and his chosen people is that they are adulterous. They're unfaithful. And so a couple of things to refer to here. They chase after false gods. Chase after false gods from Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. That's Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. You say, so God has been confronting them. I'm picking up in the middle of the discussion here. God has been confronting them through the prophet Jeremiah, and so now he's actually speaking on behalf of the people. So the people are saying... That's not true. I haven't worshiped the images of Baal. But how can you say that, Jeremiah says. Go and look in any valley in the land. The evidence is prolific. Go and look in any valley in the land. Face the awful sins you have done. You are like a restless female camel desperately searching for a mate. You are like a wild donkey sniffing the wind at mating time. Who can restrain her lust? Those who desire her don't need to search, for she goes running to them. He's saying to the people of God, you know, it's not like the false gods have come looking for you, because they can't. They're just stone and wood and images. But you go looking for them. When will you stop running? When will you stop panting after other gods? But again, you, the people, say, save your breath. I'm in love with these foreign gods, and I can't stop loving them now. Israel was an adulterous people. The people of God went chasing after false gods. And then they exchanged truth for a lie. See, it's not just in the Old Testament. They exchanged truth for a lie. Some of you already know where I'm headed with this one. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Who is he talking about? The people that have chased after false gods. The people that have feared, loved, and trust the beast instead of Christ alone. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they would not worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools, and instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. Can you think of anything worse? To be abandoned, to just go after whatever's in our own deceitful hearts. Jeremiah says our hearts are desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. As a result of God abandoning them to whatever shameful things were in their hearts, They did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. And so they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. So as we've done this week by week, I hope you're seeing that the full counsel of God it's revela- The book of Revelation is not a standalone document. It is based upon and can only be interpreted by the rest of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, because, again, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so when Paul writes this, that they exchange truth for a lie, he's talking about all people. All people. From every tribe, tongue, nation, place, all people. Does that help with the... You know, we talked about the red dragon and two beasts, the lamb and his 144,000, and the virgins. Any questions before we move on? What was the last? They exchanged truth for a lie. Hearing no questions then, let's go to the next side of the page, Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great. This is also in chapter 14, so I'll read from verses 6 through 13. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. So there's two bottles of wine here. You heard that, right? Babylon the Great as well as God. Two different two different kinds of wine they're drinking there. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur, in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Uh, Let's go a little further. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So Babylon the Great. To make this fit in context, I'm going to read a few passages from Daniel, the prophet of Daniel. He lived in Babylon. As you recall, he was an exile there, taken by King Nebuchadnezzar. When Israel was destroyed and they took the people with them. and so Daniel spent other than his childhood in Israel, he spent the rest of his life in Babylon, even through various nations and you know, Babylon falls and then the, the Persians step in and then there's the Greeks. and so Daniel lived through all of that in that context. So what do we understand about Babylon the Great comes? helps us, uh, we get some insight from Daniel. So Daniel chapter 1, actually I'm going to read a few select verses from Daniel 1, 3, and 4. So I'm just going to kind of work through that to, to give us a full picture. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him, King Nebuchadnezzar, victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. So God works through means. And in this case, it was through a wicked, power-hungry king of Babylon that brought judgment upon Israel for their unfaithfulness. Moving on to Daniel 3, King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall and nine feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he sent messages to the high officers, officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue he had set up. So all these officials came and stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then a herald shouted out, People of all races and nations and languages, right? I mean, this is the thing. All people, people of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. It's pseudo heaven. It's fake We've already heard from the book of Revelation about the harps and the music and the new song, and now King Nebuchadnezzar, long before that, is saying, I'm going to set up my own statue, my own image, and play the music, and you sing a new song to me. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Again, a reference to what we just read in Revelation chapter 14. The torment of the furnace where the smoke is night and day forever and ever. This furnace that King Nebuchadnezzar set up was, um, I don't know, temporary. But the furnace that that an unwilling, unrepentant, rebellious soul will experience is forever. Daniel 4. But all these things did happen to King Nebuchadnezzar. Well, this is when he loses his mind. And it was prophesied that his pride and ego and God would judge him for that and humble him. Because the king was saying, I am the greatest ever. Greater than God is what he was saying. And Daniel says, you're going to walk around on all fours like a beast. So, but all these things did happen to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, he was taking a walk on the flat roof of the royal palace in Babylon. As he looked out across the city, he said, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. And so, of course, he thinks he's all that. But what we heard in the book of Revelation is that God truly is the ever-living, almighty God to be worshipped, and none other. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to take credit for a lot of things, but even as you heard in the first chapter, it was because God gave him victory. Otherwise, he's nothing. So Babylon the Great, the people of the anti-Christian city. That's what's being represented here. You heard it from King Nebuchadnezzar himself. He had this idol set up, and all the people worshipped him. That's why we have those Sunday school stories about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because there was only a few that didn't. Even the most of the exiles that came from Israel bowed down to King Nebuchadnezzar's idol and, and himself. And then Nebuchadnezzar, you know, threatens them. Either you bow down to me now, or you're going into the furnace. And they did go into the furnace, but they did not burn. Because Jesus was there with them. They didn't smell like smoke. Nothing was sinced. This is powerful stuff when we put it together with the book of Revelation that then says, but for the soul that rebels and refuses to repent, there will be torment and burning for eternity, as I mentioned already. So what the Babylon the Great really is about is the people of the anti-Christian city. The population, I already said, Mount Zion, heaven, that's the population of heaven. Babylon is the population of the anti-Christian city, a resident of one or the other. And the, sorry about the typo there. It's you we are either a resident of one or the other. As great as heaven is, hell is equally opposite. As great as heaven is, hell is equally opposite. It is awful. It is eternal. Those are those next two bullet points. Hell is awful, hell is eternal. And we heard the angel say, "'Fallen, fallen is Babylon,' meaning it is utterly destroyed. It is utterly destroyed." From Isaiah chapter 2, "'Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. For the Lord has rejected his people, the descendants of Jacob, because they have filled their land with practices from the east and with sorcerers, as the Philistines do.' They have made alliances with pagans. Israel is full of silver and gold. There is no end to its treasures. Their land is full of war horses. There is no end to its chariots. Their land is full of idols. The people worship things they have made with their own hands. So now they will be humbled, and all will be brought low. Do not (coughs) forgive them. Crawl into caves in the rocks. Hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. Human pride will be brought down and human arrogance will be humbled. Only the Lord will be exalted on that day of judgment. That's Isaiah prophesying 800 years before Christ. Only the Lord will be exalted on the day of judgment. So the city the anti-Christian city will fall. It will be utterly destroyed. But there's good news. Because when the law is given, when judgment is proclaimed, hearts are quite often changed, cut to the quick, and they cry out, what must we do to be saved? From Jonah chapter 3 Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. The first time he sent Jonah to Nineveh, what did Jonah do? He ran the opposite direction. So God brought him back and says to him a second time, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I have given you. What was the message? This time Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh. See, you know, he's not... (laughs) He went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. To walk from one side to the other took three days. You know, I can walk across Chicago in one day. I've done it. So it takes it takes three days to walk across Nineveh. It's probably Oh, maybe so. Yeah, you know, bought a treat along the way, corn dog or something. Like yeah. <laughs> Thank <you. laughs> Yeah, fries and a Coke. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so anyway, so large it took three days. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. That was the message. You think it's going to turn a lot of hearts to Jesus? And the people of Nineveh believed God's message. It did. It did exactly that. The law, they believed it. And they said, uh, in fact, they believed God's message, from the greatest to the least. And they declared a fast put on burlap to show their sorrow. Ashes and sackcloth. And they said, how do we repent? How do we turn to God? If this is his message, how do we do that? What happened if they all turned to God? Well, now, the simple answer is, The Holy Spirit worked in their hearts. I don't mean to be simplistic. No, there was no, he wasn't working any miracles. All Jonah did was he walked through town. You're all going to die in 40 days. That was it. And they were, they believed, they believed God's message. And he said, what must we do to be saved? They humbled themselves before the almighty God. And God saved them, all of them. And it made Jonah mad. You know the rest of the story. So what we're talking about here is that the threat of God's law, the threat of judgment is real. And when we candy coat it or don't speak it, we are condemning people to continue on. If Jonah, first, he went the other way. If he had gotten into town and God had said, declare this message, in 40 days you'll be destroyed, and he watched and says, hey, everything looks good, keep it up, right on, <laughs> then no one would have turned. They wouldn't have believed the message. But it's because he gave them the law that then they were ready to receive God's grace. They that? They were oh, yeah. That doesn't take a whole lot of convincing, usually, to to recognize the deceit in our own hearts. So that's Babylon the Great. Any questions there before we talk about the endurance of the saints? And maybe you're thinking, week 18, the book of Revelation, I've already endured. <laughs> yeah. So let's look at, I'm going to reference in from chapter 13, verse 10, and then back over to chapter 14. Verse 10 of 13. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So, my beloved, we may be slain by the sword. We may be taken captive. We may be persecuted and martyred because of your allegiance to Christ. And so he says, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. And then he says it again in chapter 14, verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Endure. Persevere. Jesus gave this word to his disciples repeatedly. In John chapter 17, when he prays, he prays that God would help us endure. He says, I don't ask that you would take them out of the world, away from the dragon and the beasts and all those influences and the power that's against them. I pray that you help them endure, that they would remain in the faith, trusting in Christ alone. So the endurance of the saints endurance during personal suffering endurance during personal suffering this is again kind of a reference to the seals we all will face hardships and heartache i'm going to read from second corinthians chapter 4 verses 16 through 18 that's second corinthians chapter 4 verses 16 through 18 that is why we never give up though our bodies are dying our spirits are being renewed every day for our present troubles are small and won't last very long yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever so we don't look at the troubles we can see now rather we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen for the things we see now will soon be gone the things we cannot see will last forever. Paul is giving us this contrast that again God gives to us through John in the book of Revelation, this great contrast. The suffering you are experiencing now is real and hard and may in fact take your life, but it doesn't compare to the riches of eternity in heaven. What we experience now, Paul says, will be short. In comparison to. And I tell you, I mean, we've been in those times when it like this is never gonna end. This hurt and hardship, there seems to be no end hardship, there seems to be no end to it. But Paul says, by faith we know that it will end, and there is an eternity planned out for us. So I'm doubting something here, and I just need to start taking keeps You re- keep referring Lord. The, the Bible, the Scripture keeps referring to those who keep the commandments of the Lord and continue to follow Christ. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't keep the commandments of the Lord. We try, and we ask the Holy Spirit to work with us, but we break them all the time. So it almost feels like, are you being eliminated because of that? Because I know Christ has redeemed us, but we can't keep the commandments of the Lord. Right. What is the... Paul also writes later on, in reference, I think, to this question, all sins can be forgiven except one. Only one sin that cannot be forgiven, that is rejecting Christ. It's, It's referred to as blaspheming the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? Gives us faith, directs our faith towards Christ. So by blaspheming the Holy Spirit, I reject that. I rebel against. I do not trust in Christ. That's my option. I reject him, and I turn in trust to some other thing. So that's the one thing. Now, as you've also brought up for us, Anita, and actually this was my last note I was going to get to today. So, um, so but let me reference it quickly now. What are the things God tells us to do? Well, Jesus says, you know, the Jews say, what's the work, what's the commandment that we must do? And Jesus' answer is simply, believe in the one God sent. Believe in the Christ. The only name by which we may be saved under heaven is Jesus. Believe in him. He also goes on to say, what's the other commandment that we have? In 1 John chapter 1, confess your sins so that the one who is faithful and just forgives you your sins. Knowing that we are going to keep sinning. Knowing that we will each day wrestle with our selfishness, our flesh desires, and we can confess those and be certain that he will forgive us because Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says faith is being sure of what's hoped for certain of what is unseen forgiveness is unseen Christ's righteousness the robe that he placed on you in your baptism is unseen but by faith we know does that help? yeah it does no. I mean, so I it's do not you a works like, list but it, yeah, I mean, it feels it's like a works it list feels like, but okay. the command is Love Christ and trust in Faith in Christ alone, yeah. yeah. Okay. Thanks, Anita. Oh, thank you. Endurance for the purpose of proclamation is that second bullet point under the endurance of the saints. Endurance for the purpose of proclamation. Reading from Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, even going back to what you just brought up for us, Anita, we have been justified, redeemed and purchased by the blood of Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You reject Christ? No peace. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into His grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because it's hope that is resting in Christ. If you're hoping in anything else, it will result in shame. But hope in Christ, no shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Holy Spirit has been given to us. And God's love has been poured into us through that Holy Spirit. And so we have this opportunity, because of our sufferings, to rejoice because of the purpose of proclamation. We get to tell others about the hope even as we live through sufferings and trials and tribulations and we endure it gives us opportunity to proclaim the gospel and what we're talking about here is the eternal gospel that's what we're referenced in revelation the eternal gospel because god is eternal he does not change and his gospel does not change So we have one gospel from Acts chapter 4. Actually, I'll have to turn to it. Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 12. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? So they healed somebody, then they're in front of the the leaders being examined for that. By what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And so the eternal gospel, Jesus Christ crucified, resurrected, is the one who makes us well, spiritually well. One gospel for all people, all places, all times. So this comes back to what you were bringing up for us a moment ago, Anita. Those who die in the Lord are blessed. That's what the, that last phrase was that John wrote down for us. He said, he's told, write this down. From this point forward, anyone who dies in the Lord, that's a blessing. It's a blessing. Sure, we miss them, and there's emptiness and there's sorrow in our hearts for that reason, but it's blessing, and we rejoice for the one who dies in the Lord wholeheartedly, and it's an opportunity for us to to proclaim, we really mean what we say. We really do believe what we confess. And so the person who dies in the Lord is blessed. Faith in Christ. Not that every sin has been confessed. That's not the requirement. You will die and not have confessed every sin. You don't know them all. But you will, even if you do know them, if you die having not confessed every sin, that's not the entrance exam. (laughs) Faith in Christ alone. Amen, Lucille. I don't know all my sins, but forgive me for all of them. I mean... Thank you. Even in our time of silence, in our time of confession, that's an awesome, Lord, I don't know all my sins, but forgive me for all of them. That's beautiful. We're going to finish up then in these next couple of minutes with the sickles are for harvesting. The first sickle is in the hands of Christ. Chapter 14, verses 14 through 16. Chapter 14, verses 14 through 16, I'll get there. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle, and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped or harvested. So it's Christ. Notice here briefly, he's wearing a golden crown, no longer a crown of thorns, but a golden crown. He's victorious, a crown of glory. The next one is the believers are harvested first and brought in. He harvests the ripe. Brings them in. The next one. The second sickle is in the hands of an angel. not in the hands of Christ. Verses 17 through 20. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. A couple of things to keep in mind here. This is the unbeliever's are harvested and crushed. So the first, Christ harvests his own and brings them in. The second, and that's a grain harvest we have there. That's the picture there, a grain harvest. This one, now it's a different harvest. It's the the grapes on the vines, and they're thrown into a wine press and crushed. And what flows out of that wine press is not juice, but blood from Isaiah 63 Who is this who comes from Eden, Edom, in crimson garments from Bozar, sorry, Bozra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength, it is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel." The unbelievers are harvested and crushed. And this idea of the 1600 stadia, people have tried to say, well, how much is that? Sounds like a lot to the horse's bridle for 16. But it's a measurement that we don't really know what it is. It's the number 4 times 4 times 10 times 10. It's the complete number of rebellious humanity. Not one is left out. The complete number of rebellious humanity. And you heard that this angel and the voice that came from the altar comes out of the sanctuary because the Father has said, now is the time. You remember when Jesus was talking about it with the disciples, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son But the father only and so the father has said it's time seven bowls you think it's going to take long it's not so i'm going to finish it right now the seven bowls of wrath i'm not going to read chapter 16 encourage you to read it later know these two things they refused to repent you'll see that phrase repeated over and over again for each of the bowls of god's wrath the people refused to repent he poured out this bowl, it did this, and the people refused to repent. And in the end, he says, it is finished. John chapter 19, Jesus Christ on the cross, says, it is finished. And he gave up his spirit to die for us that we might be redeemed. In the end of the bowls, it's the same phrase, pours out the final bowl and God says it is finished. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for revealing to us so very much and we need your holy spirit to help us to understand. And most importantly, we need your holy spirit as he pours out your love in us to help us to know how deep, high, wide and long your love is for humanity and that you wish for none to perish. But the reality is people will perish and are perishing. So help us, your people, to proclaim the hope that comes through faith in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.